I am Plata on the line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. There's a new book out that is such a fascinating tale of murder, mores, class, racism, rumor, sex, and history. It takes place in the Parkdale neighborhood of Toronto in 1894. Clara Ford, a seamstress, also black, queer, and a single mother, is accused of murdering her wealthy, white, former neighbor. Toronto then had seven daily newspapers, and they uh, soon took on an oversized role in the investigation and trial. A media frenzy visited upon Ford, and soon there was all sorts of suspicion about her motive and character, and it uh, went on all through the publicized trial where she was the first woman to successfully defend herself in court. The book is called Clara at the Door with a Revolver, the Scandalous Black Suspect, the Exemplary White Son, and the Murder that Shocked Toronto. Its author, Carolyn Weitzman joins me now. She paints such a captivating portrait of Toronto of this late Victorian era and illuminates a hypocrisy that would come to illustrate Toronto the good and how uh, society hasn't uh, that much changed in over 125 years. Carolyn Weitzman is a professor of urban planning and a housing policy researcher who lives in Ottawa, where I reached her one week ago. She is the author of Suburb, Slum, Urban Village, Transformation in Parkdale, Toronto, 1875 to 2000. I'll ask her about what sparked her interest in the story and the research process. The book is uh, published by On Point Press, which is an imprint of UBC Press. Please uh, welcome to the Plant Online program, Carolyn Weitzman. Ms. Pre- Professor Weitzman, good morning. Good morning. You can call me Carolyn Joe. Thanks. Thanks for joining us. Well, when did you uh, first encounter this case and in, in, in this fascinating person that, that uh, Claire, Clara Ford was? Yeah, I first came across the story of Clara Ford 20 years ago when I was working on my PhD, which was on housing policy and how um, it's affected by ideas around neighborhoods. So I was looking at the neighborhood of Parkdale, Toronto, which had a reputation in planning reports of the 80s and 90s. Now I'm talking about the 1980s and 1990s as a stable, middle-class, residential uh, suburb, and I looked around me. I lived in Parkdale at the time and saw industrial buildings and very small workers' cottages, and I went, no, this was actually quite a mixed community. I was looking for stories of how, uh, what a mix of people there were in Parkdale and came across this, this fascinating story of a black woman who'd been accused of killing a rich white young man who had been her neighbor for three years in Parkdale. And I went, hmm, that's interesting. And then I had to get back to my Ph.D. thesis, um, but I remembered that story for 20 years, and when I had an opportunity to sit down and do some research, I did. Well, what, uh, I'd like to just just uh, spend a, a moment or two about your, your Ph.D. work. Um, in terms of how Parkdale has evolved uh, from, say, the 1890s to the 1990s, um, what's that transformation been like? And I think this gives us an insight into sort of the world that, that, that uh, Claire Ford, I guess, dwelled in over a hundred years ago to, to where it is, uh, you know, in, in the relative past, say, in the last uh, 20, 25, 30 years, say. Well, I guess I guess one of the themes of the book is that although Toronto's changed, it hasn't changed as much as it thinks it has or perhaps as much as it should. Mm. So I'm a housing policy researcher, 
And what I was looking at in Parkdale was that there were always um, boarding houses. There were always um, people doubling up mm. in houses. So that wasn't unusual for Toronto in uh, during the time. Um, and in this case, um, Clara and her mother and children were living in an old stables and old servants' quarters behind a family that had fallen on hard times called the Clark family. And um, they were trying to sell their house. There was a recession in the 1890s. And they um, ended up, um, uh, Catherine Clark, the, the widow, uh, ended up uh, running a pub. So I guess one of the themes that interested me then and now is the notion that people are always in this progress to becoming richer and more stable. But actually, the Clark showed a lot of downward mobility. And Clara and her family, I mean, they survived, but just barely, in the way that I think a lot of single mothers, because Clara was the daughter of a single mother mm -hmm. and herself was the mother of two daughters, in a way that single moms have to scrabble to find enough money to pay the rent and feed the kids today. Indeed. Um, so, so Parkdale in 1894, um, it's fascinating to see what it's like. Um, you, you've uh, show, showed us what it's like economically and socially. Um, this idea of Toronto the good, as somebody who's from Vancouver and who's, who's uh, I've been to Toronto twice, but limited to, to the airport, say, um, this idea of Toronto the good, does that go back to, say, the 1890s even? Oh, absolutely. Toronto was absolutely convinced that it was um, much more morally correct and um, and then much more sort of Protestant than uh, uh, sinful places like uh, Montreal. I guess, uh, at that point, Vancouver yeah. wasn't very much on the horizon um, or wasn't talked about, but it, it definitely saw itself as a respectable city. Um, the father of the murder victim, Frank Westwood, was a prohibitionist and a liberal politician as well as a successful businessman. So, um, and as I say in the book, Clara, uh, when she had to leave Parkdale and move back to downtown Toronto in the slum that was called The Ward, returned uh, every week to go to the Anglican Church. She was Anglican, and she had to walk three miles in each direction because streetcars weren't allowed on Sunday. Mm. So that, of course, you know, discriminated, discriminated against poor people who didn't have access to carriages um, and uh, is just a, in some ways a sort of symbol of um, the hypocrisy of the town. Of course, there was a lot of sex going on. Of course, there was a lot of uh, drinking going on, but um, uh, you couldn't talk about it. This hypocrisy, you, you bear that out uh, quickly as we read Clara at the door with a revolver. Um, it's fascinating to read about how, um, I, I guess how how, Toronto, how, how the city um, conduct or, or, or views itself and how it conducts itself. I mean, th this will fascinate and I think appall a lot of people. The, the hypocrisy, the view of, of, of morality that you present in the book—it's uh, curious at best. It, it, corruption was rampant, wasn't it? Oh, absolutely. So the the magistrate, the um, uh, judge who who uh, sat over virtually all trials in Toronto was a fan of uh, the Confederates, the Southern people in the mm. U.S. 
he was overtly racist, uh, Clara was subjected to a great deal of racist harassment and quite possibly, in fact, I'm going to say probably, uh, sexual assault as well. Um, but she couldn't seek justice. And, of course, the police, the, the remarkable thing about the case is that Clara was the first woman and second person to testify on her own behalf. Mm-hmm. And she managed to convince a jury of 12 white men that she had been manipulated into a false confession by the police. And in a way, I think that shows um, that the jurors were mostly working-class people, that the police weren't held in very high regard uh, in the late 19th century. And in some ways, the uh, rights of accused people have gone a bit backwards in 125 years, which is a point that I try to make in the book. Indeed. And we'll talk about just how well-timed the book is uh, in a sec. Um, let's go to October 6, 1894. This is, this is the... Um, the, the day that, that uh, Frank Westwood uh, was killed, uh, there, there are marvelous details as to what he was doing that day, I guess. Did you glean that from, say, press accounts of, uh, of um, that, that were printed, say, after the, the murder? Seven, yeah, there were seven newspapers uh, at the time, all engaged in a very furious uh, circulation war. In fact, one of the newspapers, The Empire, would merge with another, The Mail, uh, in the um, period immediately after the murder. So the next day, um, reporters were camped out at the front fence of the Westwood house. Frank had not yet died. He died three days later of blood poisoning after being shot. But um, uh, they would repeat, or in many cases, make up uh, rumors just to sell uh, newspapers. So there were rumors that Frank had been shot by his own father, or by his brother. Um, there were rumors that um, Frank had wronged some young lady in the community uh, and that um, uh, the father of that young lady had taken revenge. And there were just rumors of dangerous outsiders. So newspapers... Um, uh, as I say, they, when they when they didn't find information, they made up information <laughs> at a fairly furious pace. It's it's remarkable to see the oversized role that they they play throughout all of this. But I guess that that was those were the times, weren't they? I mean, a lot of papers um, come about sort of in a partisan way. A, a, a candidate or a political party would say start a paper to to push their agenda, to push their own candidacy, right? Yes, and very early in, I realized that as I was introducing the main characters in the story, the media were characters in the story, and so was the um, the policing system. They were actual characters in the story. How, how do you sort through, um, uh, Carolyn, um, what what's true? I mean, you mentioned seven daily newspapers. That's a, that's a lot of reading on your part as, as the author. Um, how, how do you sort out what's true in terms of the, what's published in these press accounts? You know, that question has been asked a lot, Joe, and I guess I've been interested in history long enough to know that we can never know the complete truth. Um, Clara's words come to us I mean, she didn't keep a diary or anything like that. Uh She talked to her friends. Her friends talked to reporters. The reporters reported either what they'd heard or um, what they decided they were going to print, uh, which might have not been what they heard. Uh, So uh, it's hard to know whether uh, Clara, for instance, 
um, she said that she'd lived as a man um, at some point in her teen years, uh, what her gender identity was. In fact, maybe I should say what their gender identity yeah. was, um, what, uh, what her sexuality um, uh, was. She was the first person that I've been able to find um, called a homosexual in a newspaper. Um, the, the term homosexual had been introduced in a, uh, a book by Kraft Ebbing in 1893, what was translated in 1893 into English. And in 1894, there was a two-day, four-page spread talking about Clara as a monster who had acted without motive in um, uh, shooting Frank, and that was largely using tropes that I, I think still linger today right. about, um, you know, dangerous black people and dangerous trans people. Uh, and uh, it was, um, uh, as I say, as I, as I wrote, I went, wow, a lot of this is unfortunately still quite relevant today. Indeed, yeah. Um, after uh, Westwood is, is uh, shot, what sort of investigation commences? And and because um, I found some some of the things in the book curious, like um, there was an inquest um, on his death, and 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 that was, uh, I, I guess, that began the night of the funeral. I mean, were these common practices at the time? It was, and it is remarkable that most murder trials lasted a day, an entire person's. Fate would be decided in less than a day. Um, uh, newspapers kept on talking about how long Clara's trial was. Well, it was four and a half days, you know. <laughs> um, so uh, the um, uh, the um, autopsy, uh, Frank's autopsy, took place in his bed uh, about two hours after he died, which must have been incredibly brutal for his family. Yeah. The inquest, as you say, happened... Um, three days later, um, uh, uh, just after uh, Frank was buried, the police were under tremendous pressure to come up with a suspect. They did have someone in mind, um, but uh, they were unable to track him down, at least in first. He disappeared. His name was Gus Clark, and yeah. he was the family that had been um, uh, 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 had uh, rented out to Clara. Uh, and... Um, the, the inquest was a little bit of a farce. Uh, Parkdale, although it was part of Toronto, was still very much acting as a small town, and the inquest was all about um, uh, uh, dealing with rumors that had been brought up by the police rather than finding justice. So they, uh, six weeks after um, the inquest started, uh, and it only met once a week uh, for a few hours each time, they decided that the murder was by person or people unknown. Gus Clark is a fascinating character that you just mentioned. Um, uh, he uh, um, doesn't come across well in the book, and, and, and I think you said some, <laughs> in some part of the book that, that if there's a villain here, he'd be it, wouldn't he? Well, in some ways, I would actually say that some of the um, uh, the, the racist judges, uh, uh, Hector Charlesworth, a, a terrible newspaperman whose story... Uh, stories, lies about Clara still survive. In some ways, there's a real villain, yeah. but certainly the sort of mustachioed uh, 19th century bad guy turns out to be uh, Gus, and as I say in the book, he sold vibrators yeah. uh, during the day, and he was <laughs> a burglar at night. I mean, imagine, I just kept on reading these newspapers and going, 
nobody could make this up. This is extraordinary. <laughs> um, that detail, by the way, about him uh, selling vibrators, I mean, that must have been fun to find that out. There were so many rabbit holes that I just kept on going, <laughs> okay, I'm going to look a little bit into the history of vibrators, and then I'm going to stop. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you, you mentioned, you mentioned uh, Hector Charlesworth of, of the World Newspaper. Um, again, just a, 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 a fascinating character um, a, a, who's part of all of this. And, and he is. He, I mean, we talk about fake news yeah, today, yeah. but, you know, he, he said openly in his memoirs, which were published in the 1920s, so 30 years after the murder, that quite often he wrote what he called fakes, fake news. And he did that in order to increase circulation. Um, and, and yet, it's his words that have lingered in any kind of mentions of uh, Clara since um, uh, since the 1920s. So uh, part of what I was trying to do in the book was correct the record a bit because some of the things he says, for instance, that she went around bragging about the murder are clearly untrue. Yeah. And, and, and 30 years after the case, his views certainly didn't change on her. or, or I guess he helped propagate some of those myths, didn't he? Okay, continue well, he to was, right? he was a he was a racist at twenty three and he was a racist yeah. in his fifties when he started uh, when he wrote his memoirs absolutely and and again in his memoirs he says very clearly that he grew up in Windsor and there were um, uh, black American refugees coming over the border from uh, Detroit uh-huh. and he was disturbed by that and um, you know so so you really need to take those views into account when you look at the way that he characterizes. Uh, Clara's actions. So when you look back at, at the attitude, say, of, of, of the people then, 120 years uh, ago, 120, 20, 130 years ago, um, their views in terms of, say, say uh, race and sex, I mean, they'd be shocking and, and or convoluted today, certainly. Um, the press, I guess, did they they harbored in in Charles Worth's view they harbored those views. Um, where was the public? Where where, where was the say the, the general public? The people that that Clara Ford say uh, uh, walked among or, or you know encountered mm-hmm. on a daily basis. Were, were they in the same place as, as as bigots like Charles Worth, racists like Charles Worth? Well, partly, as I say, as part of a circulation war, the newspapers provided a variety of viewpoints on uh, Clara. Um, the World, um, which uh, Charles Worth worked for, and a couple of other newspapers, including the um, new newspaper, the Toronto Star, were very quick to um, uh, make really outrageous claims about Clara, not only that she'd killed Frank Westwood, but that she drank blood and that she, you know, uh, threatened uh, uh, white men as a matter of habit, uh, etc. Um, but um, the Telegraph, uh, which is the forerunner of the Toronto Sun, actually became Clara's chief defender huh. uh, to the extent that they, uh, three um, uh, writers for the paper, appeared as um, uh, testified in her defense, saying that um, the route that the police described the night of the murder was impossible for a person to take. She would have had to walk through about a foot of water in Lake Ontario, and that made no sense. So um, what seems to have happened is when she was 
arrested six weeks after the murder, uh, you know, people were agog because her name hadn't come up before, because she was black, because she wore men's clothes, um, because she was a single mom. Um, the first reporting is just, to- and, and because um, the uh, uh, rumors that she uh, confessed uh, were there from the first, uh, yeah. all the newspapers were very anti-Clara. But then a couple of newspapers, almost to differentiate themselves, um, started saying, no, maybe uh, Clara has been fooled by the police. Um, and, and, and that in itself was a little bit racist because I kind of made her out this 33-year-old, very smart woman, to be an ignorant girl. Mm. Um, but uh, still, there were people on Clara's side. By the end of the trial and by, this, by the end of this astonishing three-and-a-half-hour performance that was you know, the first uh, woman to testify in a murder trial, people were starting to be on her side. The newspapers were like, oh, my goodness, she's going to be found guilty, but what a shame. And as it transpired, the jury went, yeah, yeah, we believe that the police acted improperly. We're going to acquit her, at which point 200 men and boys uh, accompanied her back from the courtroom to her home on uh, York Street. It was sort of an impromptu parade. Uh, um, uh, So she managed to sway the crowd. And that's the remarkable thing. I mean, despite all the tropes, say, thrown at her uh, in the press, viewed as a monster, an angry black woman, say, uh, the the Mm -hmm. framing of it all, she she manages to, to, um, to, to overcome all that and, and, and gain the acquittal. Um, She's a story of remarkable yeah. survival against all odds. And as I say in the book, I, I'm on Team Clara. You know, yeah. I'm uh, uh, leaving aside the question of whether she was guilty or not, which we can't know. She was acquitted. Um, I just think, what what a remarkable survivor. Yeah. Um, uh, this book comes out at a unique time, um, uh, and I'm curious to know um, how it's received in 2023 as opposed to, say, if you'd written this 10 years ago. Do you think there would have been a difference, eh? Yes. I, I think I'm glad that I wrote it now instead of 20 years ago mm-hmm. because um, it is. there are a lot of themes in this book that are relevant to Black Lives Matter. There's a lot of themes that are relevant to current critiquing of policing in Canada as well as the U.S., and there are also um, aspects of Me Too. In her confession, Clara said that um, her motive was that she'd been sexually assaulted by uh, Frank, that he tried to rape her Uh um, during the summer, and for various reasons, not one of those newspapers, there's a little bit of a... um, uh, an article in uh, the Globe soon afterwards, but really nobody was going to give any credence to the notion that she'd been sexually assaulted by uh, uh, Frank. The defense, because it would have given her a motive and would have, um, you know, supported the confession, and of course the Crown, because they didn't want uh, Frank, the murder victim, to seem like a, a bad person. Um, but, you know, I, I look at it and I go, okay, she confesses to the police, allegedly, that she uh, was assaulted by Frank. They don't find out whether Frank was alone or with friends. They don't try to find a date. They don't try to 
speak to any of Frank's friends to find out whether there's any corroboration for this story. It's just, it's silenced. And, and that's, you know, again, um, my, uh, I think it's very relevant to uh, questions about sexual assault today. Uh, the book has just come out, and and uh, you ask a question uh, uh, in 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 the back of the book uh, as to uh, um, whether you have the right to tell this story. Um, yeah. I, I know it's just come out, but but are you asked that that, that people um, say say wonder if you're the right person to tell the story? Nobody so far, but the book's been out for less than a week. I, I think it was really important, first of all, for me to state my positionality um, as a white woman, but also as a cisgendered uh, mm-hmm. woman, um, you know, dealing with someone who was, um, uh, I, I mean, this term wasn't used in the 19th century, but um, yeah. uh, really it was, she was the victim of transphobia. Uh, the other thing that uh, UBC Press, um, the publisher of the book, and I agreed on quite early in, was that a, the manuscript would be sent out to three black historians whose um, uh, comments appear on the back of the uh, cover. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I also I had a bit of imposter syndrome, definitely about being white. I also had a bit of imposter syndrome because I don't work as a historian. Um, but um, I got pretty good feedback, and I think that part of my hope with this book is that um, uh, other people, much more creative than me, will um, take the story in different directions. I think it would make a good movie. I think yeah. it would make a great musical, frankly. Mm. And, you know, I really hope that there are... Uh, creative people, definitely black creative people, who uh, take a look at this book and and use it um, uh, to um, you know enrich the historical record of um, who is making a difference in Canada because Clara did make a difference in her own small way. It is a riveting book. It reads like a novel in some parts, and some of these things that you recount in the book um, that are hard to believe. I mean, uh, if one invented some of the characters and some of the shenanigans that went on, uh, <laughs> that people wouldn't believe it, you know? That, 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 uh... I, I, there's no way I could make it up. I mean, I'm not a fiction writer, but, you know, she, she at the age of 33, after her acquittal, she became a dancer in the first all-black vaudeville company. Mm. You can't make that up, yeah, you know? Yeah. So... What a what a what a amazing life, um, and and one that really deserves being told. It, it is a lot of work to, to to write a book like this, and you have the the end notes to to, to uh, show your work, say. But I mean, at at some point, Carolyn, it must have been great fun to 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 to, to do the book. What, what, what do you find a lot of moments <laughs> like that? It was a labor of love, and I kept on. Saying to my husband, like each night, I'd say, "You wouldn't believe what I found out about Clara today." <laughs> you know, so um, it was um, definitely the most fun I've ever had writing anything. And yet, I I became so moved by aspects of her story. I'm not going to say where, but there were two points when I was writing the book where I just 
I was I was crying too uh-huh. hard to go on because I was so um, frustrated. I, I mean, I'll never know what it's like to um, uh, face that level of you know hatred yeah. and and barriers. But I I all Clara really wanted was um, a home for her mother and herself and her children and her own business. She was a very skilled tailor. And again, one of the threads in the book is how the work of skilled tailors was being sort of overtaken by sewing machines. Mm. Um, You know, she just wanted her own home and a business. And that shouldn't be too much to ask. And and when we look at history... Um, it's important to, to remember always that, that the, these things are cyclical, and, and you alluded to this a moment ago. Um, things that, that um, were are, are still very much um, challenges that, that, that um, we have to meet still today. And, and, and sometimes it's dispiriting to read about, um, you know, how, how people are framed or, or, or racialized people are framed um, then as now, um, mm-hmm. th- these things, you know, th- this is why history is important, isn't it? Absolutely. I think it's why history matters. And I think, I hope that people reading the book will get a better sense of Canadian history, mm. but also the roots of, you know, Canada is still caught in the mist that it's, it's a nice place, you know. Yeah. Um, and if you sort of have as the barrier better than the U.S. Indeed, you know, there were refugees, black refugees who came up from the U.S., but they did not find uh, a welcoming society, that's for sure. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Weitzman, Carolyn, this is such a a fine book. Congratulations on it and continue. Good luck with it. I so appreciate your time today. Thank you so much, Joe. The book is called Clara at the Door with a Revolver, The Scandalous Black Suspect, The Exemplary White Son and the Murder that Shocked Toronto. It's published by On Point Press, which is an imprint of uh, UBC Press. Its author, Carolyn Weitzman, joined me on the line from Ottawa, Ontario, in Vancouver. I'm Joseph Plato.